Rosh Hashanah on the New Year, it's written, and on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it's sealed. What is sealed? Our fate is sealed. Who will live and who will die? What autumn means for Jews is the Jewish New Year. It's not like December the 31st. Instead, it begins a period known as the Ten Days of Penitence. Who will die at their predestined time and who before their time? I think Rosh Hashanah sits on this bridge between celebration and then falling every now and then within the same liturgy into moments of quite deep solemnity and and worry about will we all make it through another year and what will this year bring you're switching in this extraordinary way between fear and trembling and and great joy who will be impoverished and who will be enriched who will be degraded and who will be exalted just before uh, Rosh Hashanah it's really all about the preparation for the meals together my family and I, thank God there's many of us, there's about 30 or 40 of us, and we all get together at my grandma's house, um, and everybody cooks a dish, so we're all busy preparing for the meal. The children get very excited. We talk a lot about what we get, the songs we're going to be singing, Rosh Hashanah, and uh, a lot about um, having a sweet new year and the apples and the honey. It's preparation for the big meal that we have together. I don't think our preparations as a family have always been very spiritual. What did coming Rosh Hashanah mean? Going to buy a Yom Tov outfit and everybody would turn up in Leeds in Shul in a new outfit. You had new shoes and a new dress every year. Not very spiritual, but a real sense of taking this day very seriously. I'm Rabbi Jeremy Gordon. I'm the rabbi of New London Synagogue in St John's Wood. There is a great sense of excitement around Rosh Hashanah. It's a wonderful time for families to get together. There's lots of optimism about the year to come. We wish each other a sweet new year. And there are all kinds of foods that we eat, honey and apples and other kinds of foods for a good siman, a good uh, omen for the year to come. Today uh, we are hoping to collect honey. I have brought my little pots in the hope that I can take two home. I'm going to be keeping mine for the Rosh Hashanah table. We're going to walk now and have a look at the beehives. Um, so here we go. <laughs> So on the first night of Rosh Hashanah, I have uh, my children all come home. This is an opportunity to invite people who are dear to me. And um, we start off with a ritual that would be the same in every Jewish household where uh, there is apple and honey on the table. The apple is picked up and dipped into the honey, and then we say a blessing over it, which is Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Haetz. And then the, the apple is dipped into the honey and everybody partakes. And it's generally just once a year that one does this. But every year, everyone says, Oh my word, this is so delicious. Why don't we do this more often? 
and then forgets about it till the following year. Besides the apple and honey, there's always uh, honey cake on Rosh Hashanah. We would always have that growing up. And it gets to the point where there's so much honey around. You know, my mum always insisting you must take a big dollop of extra honey with your apple to ensure that you have a sweet new year. There's so much honey around that now that if I have, for example, a slice of honey cake, it's almost Pavlovian. I'm right back there at, at Rosh Hashanah and around that family table. So this is where you now need to prise open the top level of the the hive. You can hear that. That's one level coming off. So there's something incredibly and delightfully apt about the Jewish calendar and, and, and the natural calendar, it dovetails very beautifully. And as we sit at our Rosh Hashanah table and we partake of apple and honey, I think maybe it's appropriate not just to think about us having a good year, but, but nature having a good year as well. And that, to a very great extent, depends on us being good to nature. So there's a sort of holistic message, I think, of, of good health, um, not just for humankind, but, but for the world in which we live in. It's a good message. There's a 10-day period between the beginning of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The sense that we have from the Talmud, the great source of rabbinic teaching, is that what happens to our life in the year to come is hanging at this time, and it'll get specified and sealed down by the end of Yom Kippur. So there's an opportunity to reflect, to rework, to look back on the year we've had, and to make commitments for the year that's coming. And we're supposed to take our lives in our hands at this time. If you had to choose one prayer that captured everything about this period of time for Jews, it would be the Unatani Tokef prayer. And it said right at the height of the service. The Unatani Tokef prayer um, actually just gives me goosebumps the minute the prayer is, is even started. I can feel my hair standing on end. And I don't know if it's because it's just, you know, there's history with that prayer. You know, I've heard it year on year and, you know, whether I've been standing with my mother and my sister and my grandmother or, you know, whether I'm here now with, you know, with my family listening to it and it's always the same. And the English is very, very stark, you know, who's going to live, who's going to die. Who will live and who will die. On Rosh Hashanah it is written, and on Yom Kippur it's sealed. Who will pass from the earth, and who will be created? Who will live, and who will die? Who will die at their predestined time, and who before their time? Who by water, who by fire? Who by sword, who by beast, who by famine? Who by thirst, who by storm? Who by And who shall I say is calling? one particular piece which I think has struck a chord partly because of Leonard Cohen but partly because it just allows us to realise 
we're not going to live forever. We have no idea what the year ahead holds in store for us. I mean, we're right around the cusp of 9-11. You know, you just have no understanding of what life could throw at you. And one of the underlying themes of Rosh Hashanah is to touch your mortality, to touch the fragility of what it means to be a human being, and to just stand there with that for a moment. It's very hard to do, to stare into death for any extended period of time. But we're called to do it on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And this, I think, is the central prayer that helps us do that. My name is Jonathan Friedland, and I'm a columnist for The Guardian. One of the very strong things about all Jewish festivals is they exist in both time and in space. What I mean by that is space, whenever there's a Jewish festival going on, you're aware that all around the world there will be Jewish communities doing exactly what you're doing at that moment, whether it's lighting candles or saying a prayer, you're aware that all over the globe that's happening. But also, beyond space, it stretches back in time, and you're aware that the tune you're singing, the people you're standing with, those tunes, those melodies, those words have been spoken, not just now, but in your parents' generation, grandparents' generation, and going back further and further. So in the portion of Malchiot, which is in Musaf, the additional prayer for Rosh Hashanah, there's, um, there's a prayer which I call Haben Yakirli Ephraim, which my... Uh, just remembering my late mother and she always used to tell me how much she adored this tune and it was her favorite tune so I actually find it quite hard to listen to this tune and this year I actually have to sing it in public and I'm really struggling even now to practice it because it's really really tough to sing it without crying but uh, it's, it's a beautiful beautiful tune and it really resonates within me Sacharti lach chesed naurayich Ahavat kelulotayich Lechtech acharai bamidbah Be'eretz lo Vezacharti ani et britiotach I've just pulled off the shelf my grandpa's machza, the, the prayer book that he uses on Rosh Hashanah, because he always joins us in London for Rosh Hashanah from Leeds, so he leaves his machza here. I haven't looked at it before. And um, my grandpa's 100. He was born in 1911. He just celebrated his 100th birthday this year with two parties and he's an amazing man and this Machsa was published in 1893 and it says in Yiddish in it Im English with a with an English translation and it's according to the custom of German and Polish Jews so it's the it's the Ashkenazi Jewish version of the prayers and he used this last year and the year before he can't always read all the words perfectly anymore, but it doesn't matter because he's done a hundred Yom Kippur's now and they've all been the same. <laughs> so Nothing changed, he, kno- he knows the prayers quite well by now. You notice in the shul when... When they blow the shofar, all the children stop, even the naughty children, even the ones who are running around and just outside, they all come running in and they look with the big eyes and they go quiet and they are really struck by this noise. So it has this effect, whoever you are. 
and I think it brings everybody in a world where we have so much noise into a state of of listening to this piercing shrill noise and I, I get that sense of how it awakens your soul. I was good with uh, whistling, whistling with my fingers, and naturally, I was also okay with the shofar, and it was just, uh, it just worked for me. In certain synagogues and communities, it uh, becomes a, a cult thing uh, with kids counting the seconds, how long he manages to, to blow the shofar without uh, stopping. But um, I, I never felt uh, too small to, to do the job. really hard to say sorry to someone in any way you know if it's a friend if it's a lover if it's a parent it's just really really hard and anything that can kind of help get you there I think is good the hope is very much that it's Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur we find ways to do that My name is Jay Rayner. I'm a journalist for The Observer, broadcaster, and I have a few novels to my name as well. I am a devout, head-banging, unto-the-barricades atheist. I think it's intriguing that there should be some ritualised form by which we are meant to say sorry for what we've done. It seems very tidy, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur has always struck me as an exceptionally tidy conceit. We package it all up, and we say sorry, we have our ten days of penitence, and then we go in there and we starve ourselves. How else are Jews supposed to atone by it but by not eating? Um, and then it's all done and dusted, and on we go. How very tidy. As a child, I had an uh, Orthodox upbringing. It was United Synagogue, but the Orthodox end of United Synagogue. So we kept Strictly Kosher, Shabbat. Um, there were no lights on Shabbat, no driving, no television, orthodox schooling. So in school, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were very serious times for reflection and for learning. And in the lead up, everybody used to run around for this month saying, and I didn't work out what they said for three years. I was so scared to ask. People used to walk around and they didn't just say, will you moichel me, which means... Um, will you forgive me? But they flipped it, they Yiddishized it into will you be moichel me, which confused me even more. I had absolutely no idea what they said. All I knew is you had to say yes. And if you didn't say yes three times, it became your sin, whatever that meant. And um, and so people used to run up, people you hated with a passion had been so bitchy to you. And they'd say, will you moichel me? And you'd go, uh, yes, <laughs> thinking I hate you. I don't want to forgive you. So this is the picture. Everybody's been at home, they've been eating, they've been preparing themselves for a 25-hour fast. They come to shore 
and it's the Col Nidre service. It's the most well-attended, most looked-forward-to service in the year. A lot of people wear white. As a rabbi, I'll be wearing a long white garment. Um, it's the only evening service where you wear a talit, a prayer shawl. So it has a, an incredible feel already. And the doors of the ark are opened and a Torah scroll is processed around the community. And everybody is sort of stood there and there's a real feeling of expectation. All vows, renunciations, bans, oaths, formulas of obligation, pledges and promises that we vow or promise to ourselves and to God from this Yom Kippur to the next. Made approaches for good, we retract. I live in Stamford Hill and uh, obviously the ultra-Orthodox community are based in Stamford Hill. So I'm surrounded by that sort of atmosphere during Yom Kippur. It's very beautiful, actually. If you walk around the Stamford Hill area, uh, you see men and women uh, wearing a lot of white because white symbolises purity. People don't wear leather shoes because that's a symbol of uh, luxury um, and uh, we're not supposed to feel particularly comfortable because we're supposed to be aware that it, the physical is no longer important at this point it's all about the spiritual so um, you'd see men walking around with trainers non-leather trainers or plimsolls canvas shoes and the same for women in israel uh, yom kippur is probably the first thing that secular people do uh, so many many people fast even if they don't go to shul Secular families actually look forward to Yom Kippur because it's a festival with no cars. Tel Aviv, which is a total 24-7 city, uh, becomes totally, totally silent. People even talk quietly because it's, it's quite eerie and beautiful. You, you, you see in the busiest roads with horrible traffic on uh, every, every day, people go out and, and they meet each other and... Uh, a, a big attraction is the the highway, the, the motorway, to see it, uh, to see kids like uh, sitting in the middle of the the motorway and rollerblading, and uh, that has become um, an, an interesting secular, uh, popular um, phenomenon. <laughs> The problem I've always had around Yom Kippur and fasting is the clash between the ideas about spirituality and forgiveness and thinking about your sins and the reality of very bad behaviour, by, particularly by people who smoke, who choose not to smoke on that day, and people who generally eat a lot who don't eat on that day. My partner is grumpy on Yom Kippur. He starts the day okay, but starts talking from the morning about missing his tea, missing toast, missing breakfast. When he's in shul, he's okay, but he can't sit still and he's walking about and goes outside and comes back in. And from about one o'clock onwards, it starts to kick in, the bad mood, the nastiness. And then the headache normally hits at about 430 the stubble appears about five-ish and it's kind of downhill really from about six onwards. 
few years ago, I didn't fast because I was pregnant. And Yom Kippur went past very, it, it didn't feel like anything to me. It really, really didn't feel I was in for the prayers. I was there all the way through. I heard all the liturgy. I heard all the tunes, but I was full. I wasn't thirsty and I wasn't hungry. And I felt I had missed Yom Kippur afterwards. I really felt that I'd lost something. I think the fasting element is absolutely critical in this whole process for you to actually feel cleansed. It's the spiritual cleansing that you feel at the end of it and it's the fasting that does it along with everything else. Sin is a word that's gone sort of somewhat out of fashion. And I think a lot of Jews are very nervous about the word. People don't want to be associated with guilt. I think that's another word that people assume is a bad word. But sin means you missed or you deliberately went against something that you should have done. And you just have to, I think, acknowledge it. Throughout Yom Kippur, we do this piece called Slichot, or Asking for Forgiveness. And we recite two great lists of sins. One's called the Ashamnu and the other is called the Al-Khait. For the sin that we have sinned before you through haughtiness. For the sin that we have sinned before you with prying eyes. For the sin we have sinned before thee the sin that we under compulsion or of free will. For the sin we sin before thee by hardening our heart. And for the sin that we have sinned before you with brazen. For the sin we sin before thee with utterance of the lips. For the sin we sin before thee by unchastity. And for the sin that we have sinned before you through impure lips. For the sin we sin before thee knowingly and deceitfully. For the sin we sin before thee in speech. Besides the journalism, I do write novels as well under a pseudonym of Sam Bourne. And the very first one I wrote was called The Righteous Men. And it was steeped in Jewish tradition. And it was set, and this was the crucial point, it was set during the Ten Days of Penitence. It begins the first night of Rosh Hashanah, New Year. And it goes all the way through. The climax of the book comes with the climax of Yom Kippur. And that was because I'd always felt there was something inherently dramatic about these 10 days where really you only have a limited amount of time to make amends and to potentially to save your own life before it's too late. The Day of Atonement is a sort of five-act drama and the last act is Ni'ila, literally means sealing or locking or closing. There's a rule actually that you, you can't pray in a room with no windows. So as you're in a synagogue on the windows you can feel the light changing outside. So you gather as dusk is coming and the community who've worked through this day of fasting, of standing, of praying together comes together. It's an amazing atmosphere. It's incredibly intense. You look around and you do see people begging for forgiveness, making requests, often people crying because they're actually feeling that sense of the gates closing and it's their sort of last attempt. 
This was Naila, the concluding segment of what would have been a marathon day-long service. Tradition demanded that the congregation, denied food or water for the previous 24 hours, stand for the duration in recognition of the gravity of the moment. For this was the final hour of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Day of Reckoning. In this hour, the gates of heaven were closing. Repentance was urgent. The last-minute penitent slipping through the crack in the door just as it thundered shut. Those who had not atoned or left it too late were left outside. When the shofar finally sounds at the very end, if you look around, you do see a sense of, um, I suppose, elation around the shul. when it finishes people don't necessarily run away people come over and, and want to share in the amazing experience they've just been through together and as you come out of Yom Kippur you do feel excited you haven't eaten you haven't drunk so you're a little bit sort of woozy and, and, and your senses are so attuned the first glass of water that you have after Yom Kippur, it tastes so sweet. There is something magical at that time. This special edition of Sounds Jewish was produced by Sarah Peters with music composition and sound design by Lemez Lovash and Yanni Friedel. With special thanks to Rabbi Jeremy Gordon and cantor Jacqueline Chernit and of course to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London.